Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 11. Shepherds and sheep. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock, Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. In a couple of years, God willing, uh, we're going to be sending out another church plant from here. And to do that, we're going to need a minister who'll be over over that church, over that new church. Now, imagine um, if you were on the committee or the, the nomination panel that was finding that minister. What kind of things would you be looking for? What kind of things would you love to, to see in that person? I've been in a couple of churches now that have been looking for a new minister and I found it really interesting just to walk around and ask people in the church what they were hoping for from that person. I remember some people said that they were hoping for someone who was a really good preacher. Others really wanted someone who was pastoral, who was really friendly and caring and knew just what to say. Others um, said they wanted a strong leader who could set the direction for the church Some wanted him to be academic. Some wanted him to be more free or spirit-led, as they put it. And some wanted him to be contemporary and and able to connect with unbelievers. Well, today, as we start a new series in Titus, we get to see what God wants in a minister. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul says to Titus, his co-worker and his friend, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. They've planted a whole heap of churches around the island, but the job's not finished because Paul says Titus needs to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In our chapter today, Paul goes on to remind Titus of the kind of leaders that God wants for his churches. But before we get to this bit about leaders, Paul starts his letter with an introduction. And so we're going to start there too. Craig's actually going to read for us today 
as we go along through the sermon in three different parts. So follow along with him, page 844. He's going to read for us to start with Titus 1 to 4. Thanks, Craig. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading bits like this in the Bible, I often quickly skim over them. In my mind, I'm going, yeah, 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 I've got it. It's from Paul the Apostle, let's get to the important bit. Does anyone else ever do that as well? (laughs) But The thing is, this is a really important bit. This bit is really important because it introduces what the letter is all about. And actually, even more than that, it's really important because this introduces what God really cares about. So let's spend a couple of moments to try and understand what Paul's saying here. Paul starts the letter by making his role crystal clear. In verse 1, you can see he says, Paul, a servant of God, or a slave, which is actually what we all are, anyone who believes. But he's also, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is something that none of us are, and none of us can be. The apostles existed at one point in time to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, people who saw it. Paul wants to make particularly clear here Uh, the reason that he's apostle, what he's trying to achieve as an apostle. Look in verse 1, Paul is an apostle to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And this is our first point today and it's too big a point to just skip over. Faith and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness are extremely important in God's people. Paul explains how he works to bring about faith and knowledge of the truth. In verse 2, he says, people have faith and knowledge of the truth in the hope of eternal life. The idea is that their faith and knowledge of the truth is built on the hope of eternal life. In verse 2, God's plan was for eternal life to come through the message that Paul preaches. And in the rest of the book of Titus, we see that the message of eternal life is all about Jesus. It's about Jesus giving us eternal life by making us right with God. Jesus making us clean before God by his death in our place. Paul's God-given job is to tell everyone about eternal life through Jesus so that they'll have faith and so that they'll know the truth and so that they can have this hope of eternal life this certain, definite hope. But did you notice the kind of knowledge of the truth that God wants wants us to have? See, we're not to be like the nurses that I used to work with when I was a pharmacist working in a hospital. Some of the hardest patients that you can get to look after are those with emphysema. They um, were some of the most neediest people. You can sort of see in their eyes the terror as they struggle for each breath. They're in one week, back home the next, and then back into hospital again after that. Now, the nurses knew that smoking had done this to them. 
They knew the truth. But what did they do with that truth? Where did, they lead, where did it lead them? Well, for the nurses I worked with on Ward 3, it didn't translate into what they did during their break time as they kind of complained about the very difficult patients. They did it as they, as they shared a cigarette. Their knowledge didn't seem to impact what they did in their breaks. When it comes to God's message about eternal life, that's not the kind of knowledge of truth that he wants us to have, a knowledge that doesn't change our action. Paul is working for people to have knowledge of the truth that leads, in our case, where it's supposed to take us, is godliness. Truth that kind of escapes from your head and makes its way into our hearts and into our hands. See, when we know about eternal life, when we hear the message about Jesus, who died in our place to make us children of God, if that knowledge doesn't start to change us to want to live as children of God, then we've missed something. We don't really know it. We just know about it. A person who can quote the Bible, chapter and verse who can argue and and debate, who can lose you in a discussion in 10 seconds, who hijacks community group, that person's not necessarily someone who has knowledge of the truth. Real knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. And because these things are so important to God, faith in Jesus and life-changing knowledge of the truth, because they're really important, they impact the the kind of things that we should be looking for in the people we make leaders in our churches. And this brings us to our second point. Leaders who hold firmly to faith and knowledge of the truth are extremely important for God's people. As we saw Titus, uh, Paul say to Titus in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And Paul says and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If you've been around churches for a while, when you hear elders, your mind probably jumps to whatever particular understanding of elders uh, your previous church denomination understood. Or if you haven't been around churches for very long, when you hear elders, you probably, your mind jumps to people with white hair and white beards and a staff. Or if you've been spending time with Mormons, it jumps to young teenagers on bikes with badges that say Elder Stephen or something like that. But we've got to put aside whatever jumps into our minds at this point and allow God's Word to speak for itself. Craig's going to read for us our next bit, Titus 5 to 9. Follow along as he reads. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer is is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
Paul explains what he means by elders in verse 7. He says, since an, o- Sorry. <coughs> since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. Do you see how Paul shifts from talking about elders to now calling them overseers? This is not two different roles. Paul is saying that the elder is an overseer. Their role is to manage God's church like they're managing a household, an extended family. We're not given the exact structural details of of how churches were to operate and, and you never really are in the New Testament. In Timothy, you read about deacons, but here in Titus, there's nothing mentioned about them. In the the end, trying to nail down an exact kind of church structure, exactly how it should be with bishops, well, overseers, elders, deacons, that's a distraction. The critical thing is that the church needs leaders who will manage God's household faithfully, His church, like a family. Well, who are the elders or the overseers here at T&E? Now, without a doubt, I have probably the most overlap with this role. And Mike Sams, when he was here, before he planted up to Trinity Grove, equally had just as much overlap with this role. But having said that, even I don't 100% perfectly fit this role, because in some ways I'm a little bit more like Titus, in that you didn't raise me up from within the church here, I came in as an outsider. Our leadership team, on the other hand, has been raised up from within us, and same with our community group leaders. Now, they're not elders, there's probably less of an overlap there, but there is still quite a bit of overlap. And if you're in one of those roles, then this part of the Bible has a lot to say to you directly too. And this is the case if you're a jam leader, or a fixed leader, or even a parent in many ways. Whenever we play a role in leading other people in their faith and their knowledge of the truth, then we have a lot of overlap with this part of the Bible. And we can learn a lot from this list of things that God wants to see in leaders. We see the summary of what God's looking for in verse 6. An elder must be blameless. And this is repeated in verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. This doesn't mean perfect. It means not open to blame, not open to accusation. Not because they're really good at hiding things, but because there's nothing there for people to dredge up when it comes to their faithfulness. And in particular, there needs to be no failures in faithfulness in marriage and in bringing up children. Paul's point is that if there are questions around someone's faithfulness in their own household, then don't risk putting them over God's household. Paul then goes on to list five things that must never be found and six things that must be found in a blameless leader. And again, while it's not the main point, these things are also critical in a husband, in a father, in a mother. They're critical in anyone who leads. You could probably easily argue that they're critical in a president too, but we're not going to go there. Look at verse 7. First, a leader in God's church must not be overbearing. In other words, not arrogant. Must not be quick-tempered. Must not be given to drunkenness. Must not be violent. 
must not be pursuing dishonest gain. Who wants to follow an arrogant, angry, violent, greedy drunk for a minister? Paul says what must be present in a church leader in verse 8. He must be hospitable. He must love to welcome people in. He must love what is good. He must be self-controlled. He must be upright. He must be holy or devout. He must be disciplined. See, how much easier is it to follow a humble, patient, generous, gentle, welcoming, self-controlled, God-loving person? Now, for me, this week as I was preparing this passage, it's quite a, a weird experience to be sitting there preaching on a passage when you're the minister, when this applies and needs to apply to your life. Because even more than you, I see my own faults. And even more than you or me, my wife and kids see my own faults. But this is not about being perfect. It's about being authentic. It's about living a life that's authentically transformed by Jesus' grace. Leaders must live a life that, that shows a clear and strong faith in Jesus. They must have a knowledge of God's truth that leads to clear characteristics in them that point to Jesus being their Lord and Saviour. When I was young, I didn't want to be a minister because I didn't want this responsibility. I didn't want to have to be so disciplined. I didn't want my example to matter so much. But you know what I came to realise? Even if I wasn't a leader... I was still called to this kind of living. See, I was thinking about church leaders as if they were a special category of Christian. And let me tell you, we're not. I was thinking about church leaders as if there really were clergy and laity. There's no distinction. As if God had different expectations for elders and for everyone else. But He doesn't. He calls everyone to live like this. It's just that if leaders aren't living like this, how can they authentically call others to live like this? You know, think about an air host who doesn't bother to stow his luggage safely, who doesn't wear his seatbelt low and tight when the captain puts on the seatbelt light, has a quick smoke in the toilet just before the safety demonstration. It's not a great air host. Chances are you're not going to have a very safe flight with them. The air host needs to know the safety, air safety, and to practice it so that he can call on other people to do the same. If leaders in the church are going to have any hope of calling people to faith and knowledge of the truth, their lives have got to show that they know, that they truly know that truth themselves. Paul says in verse 9, a leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. So imagine a church leader who doesn't hold fast to the message. You know, he knows Jesus is his Lord, his Lord and Saviour, and he knows that getting drunk is not honouring Jesus because it easily leads to unloving behaviour, but he justifies it in his head or, or he ignores it. How's he going to go sounding the call for others. So he's likely to stay silent about drunkenness, isn't he? Never teach about it. In this area, he's probably not going to sound 
the clear call to everyone else to honour Jesus. Or a minister who is sexually unfaithful, you know, but they've repented, so we just put them back in their role. What happens next time that they've got to preach on sexual purity? It becomes very hard for us to listen to them when they preach against it, against sexual immorality. Now, we might listen more when he's preaching because we'll be curious what he's going to say, but subconsciously, even if we don't realise, what we'll do is walk away thinking, well, if it's okay for him, then it's okay for me. That's unhealthy because we're called to live for Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, not for some human standard. A leader doesn't just encourage people in the end, encourage people in sound doctrine. In verse 9, they are also to refute those who oppose it. The elder has to be able to say to people in the church, this is talking about, what you are teaching, how you are living, it's, it's not faithful to Jesus. They do it humbly and they, they do it lovingly, but firmly. You don't want a leader whose aim is to be everyone's best friend. You want someone who knows the truth of the message of Jesus and will stick by it. We see why this is so necessary in the next section in Titus. And Craig's going to read for us 10 to 16. Follow along. Thanks, Craig. For there are, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining the whole they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. This brings us to our third point. See, there are many people who don't have faith and don't know the truth, but they think they do. If you piece together the clues in Titus and in other places like Timothy, Paul is talking about Jewish people who call themselves Christians but have drifted from the truth. They've added in human ideas and commands. They require extra ways to be clean before God, apart from Jesus. Things like spe special rituals or avoiding certain foods, things like not having sex. Look at how strongly Paul feels about them in verse 11. He says they must be silenced. He doesn't mean silence them James Bond style. He means they can't be given a platform to teach in the church, to teach their ideas. And this is incredibly serious and he tells us why in verse 11. Because they're disrupting, literally they're bringing down whole households. People's eternal salvation is at stake. Paul says the Cretans are especially vulnerable to false teachers. It feels a little bit harsh as he's saying this. Did you find that? But the Cretans actually were known for some pretty big cultural problems. 
Cicero said that their moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honourable. I must admit, when I read that, it made me think a little bit of Ned Kelly and, and our bush rangers, but anyway. And even the Cretans, as we saw with their poet there, Epimenides, even the Cretans acknowledged that their, short, their shortfallings were clear. Paul says to Titus that he needs to appoint leaders who can hold to the truth of the gospel, and his job, alongside these leaders, is to speak with razor-sharp clarity and authority into the cultural situation of Crete. Their job is to do this for the sake of the believers, so that they don't get caught up in the lies of their times. Look at how Paul applies the truth of the gospel to these people in verse 15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Paul himself here is giving that razor-sharp rebuke to the lies that they need to hear. But do you see the difference between the pure and the corrupted? It's there. The corrupted do not believe. They don't have faith. Paul is saying, whoever believes in Jesus is pure. They have no need for further purification. And because they're pure, nothing can corrupt or defile them while ever they believe in Jesus. Nothing that God has made to be enjoyed in this world can defile them. Sex, alcohol, smoking, nothing. Whenever we receive these things as gifts from God, whenever we use them in the way that He wants them to be used, out of love, in their right context, like for sex in marriage, received with thankfulness, they're pure. All things are pure. Whereas to those who don't believe that Jesus' purification is enough, to them, he says, nothing is pure. And the tragic irony is that no amount of their washing or avoiding certain foods, no amount of not getting married so as to avoid having sex, none of that will cleanse them. No amount of trusting religion, trusting ritual will cleanse them. All it does is undermine the one person who can save them, Jesus. We need to keep in mind, and this is easier said than done, just because people look spiritual and sound spiritual, it doesn't mean they are. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. What makes us spiritual in the end, what makes us pure is only faith in Jesus. We need to know this truth and we need to live by it. And Paul says in this passage today that leaders in God's church are critical to us knowing the truth and living by it. Next week, we'll see just how it is that God's message about Jesus actually leads to godliness. You know, what is the connection? What is it that, that takes us from knowing the truth through to actually living a godly life? We'll explore that next week. But today, I just want to finish with a couple of things that this passage, Titus 1, really means for us. First, 
It means that we need to pray for our leaders. Pray for me. Pray for your leadership team and for your community group leaders. These roles are important and we really need God's help to do them well. Second, it's easy to follow our leaders when they encourage us. But this passage tells us that this is only half of a leader's job. If your community group leader challenges you, you know, gently, out of love, but challenges you, how will you respond? Don't forget that sometimes that's a part of a leader's job too. Third, do you see what this passage means for online sermons? Online sermons are great because we have access to some, some of the most brilliant preachers around the world. But don't make the, the mistake of letting them take the place of your church leaders. A mediocre preacher who's transformed by the truth of the gospel in your local church is infinitely better than someone online who lifts your soul but you have no idea if they love their wife or how they treat their kids or if they're slow to anger and all these other important things. Now, I, I don't think anyone's sort of a groupie of mine listening online, but uh, I'll address them. If you are, you need your church. Go there. <laughs> Fourth, never be intimidated by someone who knows it all. Knows it all. If they truly know it, they'll live it which means they won't be proud and arrogant. They'll be humble and they'll use what they know to, to build you up, to serve you. I always think of a lecturer of mine, Barry Webb or, or Paul Harrington, both who are very brilliant men. But when you talk to them, they, they don't ever make you feel stupid, do they? If you've met Paul, he doesn't. They listen more than they speak. They're humble. They know the truth and it transforms the way that they live. Fifth, remember all these things that we've looked at today, they're important for leaders because they're important for all God's people. Knowing what Jesus has done for us changes us. If you know the truth, then live with Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And sixth and finally, this passage tells us the church needs leaders who will step up, people who have faith in Jesus people who will live out the truth of the gospel. Can I encourage you, if your life is touched by Jesus, then step up and humbly lead. We need jam leaders, we need community group leaders and fixed leaders. We need people to be doing MAP, Ministry Apprenticeship. See, God cares about people's faith and He cares about their knowledge of the truth. And if we're going to be a people who are strong in faith, and truth, then we need godly leaders. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the message of eternal life that you have revealed in Jesus through what he has done on the cross for us. Lord, we thank you that you have made us completely acceptable in your eyes through him, that we have a sure, solid hope of eternal life Lord, we thank you for those leaders in our lives who brought this message to us about Jesus. And we thank you that through them you brought about faith in our lives and a knowledge of the truth that shapes us. But Lord, we ask that you would be at work in our lives, raising up leaders and working through them. 
so that our faith would grow and our knowledge of the truth would grow and Lord that it would be authentic that it would lead to godliness be with those who lead us help them to stay dependent on you humble before you realizing their need for Jesus and calling others to realize this as well we pray this in Jesus name Amen